The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the following program belong solely to the host and guest and do not necessarily reflect those of this radio station, our parent company, advertisers, or affiliates. Welcome to Sharing Our Stories. We share stories of support for individuals in recovery from substance misuse and mental health-related issues. There are numerous pathways to recovery, and each week we welcome powerful leaders and role models who have struggled in drug and or alcohol addiction, have found a pathway to recovery, and who thrive as positive community members with an ongoing vision of success. Join us as we share our experiences, strength, and hope. When the world says, give up, hope whispers. Try it one more time. Good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. Today on SOS, sharing our stories, I'm Tomas Hernandez, co-host. Our other host today is dealing with some family things. Uh, May have prayers to Slim and his family that are back east um, going through some things. We just want to give you love, all everything that you need. Please surround with prayers for his family and, and his safe return back to Colorado. We miss you. We love you. And we hope that everything is the best possible. Today is a big day for me. When I started in reentry work, I remember hearing about this man's name. I had to see what was happening because he was so hot. He had so much. You know when you're hot when you got 8 million haters. You know when you're hot, you got 8 million <laughs> haters and talking. I was like, nah, nah, nah. This man is, he's, he's something else. So I, I, I just kept on listening. I kept on listening. I kept on listening. But I kept on seeing things grow. And I kept seeing things grow. One day I got a phone call. And I remember when I got a phone call from this gentleman, I probably had money from my cell phone bill and I was on E. I got there on E to his organization just to have the conversation with him and was very blessed and honored to become a, a, a partner, a brother, a lot of mentorship that I've seen through it that, and a lot of leadership. And today that we got on the air, it's Hassan Latif, the founder of Second Chance Center in Colorado. I could go on and on about this organization. They are the epitome of reentry that started in Colorado the right way grassroots started out of his car then also let me not forget with my rudeness to introduce my co-host and producer nani she's sitting over there and she's swearing to me every time she's not going to be quiet and speak on the next on these events, <laughs> yeah. on these radio shows I'm that here. we're doing <laughs> but um i would love for everybody to you know kind of sit back pour a cup of coffee and really dial in because the story that you're about to hear right now is probably the most compelling situation that we ever had to catapult 22 partners out of the Latino coalition family that are doing the reentry work in the state of Colorado today. I'm a very honored, honored, oh man, just kind of got choked up on it to be in the in Latino coalition family and the Wages family and plenty more grants and riding with, with my man, um, Hassan. Let's not forget about our sponsors with Merge Media Academy. Thank you for all the beautiful stuff that you provide for that. If you want to know some more, go on our website, Jammin' uh, website, and also the Flow website. We are sponsored here by yours truly and the the company that that, that brings this to you, which is uh, Tribe uh, Recovery Homes and Max Media. Uh, More about us later. You can get a hold of us. You guys hear me every morning, every Sunday morning on that. But I would really like to just be quiet. And pass the mic on over to Hassan Latif. Hey, thank you. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. That's a pretty big lead in, brother. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> you might be overselling me a little bit. Nah, nah. <laughs> but uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate the opportunity. I've been yeah. actually looking for a chance to come in studio, brother. You know. Yeah. Uh, so when's my man going to reach out to me? 
but I know you're just working on some things and, and getting the flow going. So. Yeah, we had to have the nice – we had to get your, your Yankees. I'm sorry, everybody. He's a big Yankees fan. I'm a Raiders fan. Y'all can boo right now. <laughs> One, two, three, boo for both of us. You know what I mean? Yes. But, you know, we had to get that – we got to get your colors okay. on, on the wall. Well, but, yeah, we had to build the studio out, and that's what I wanted to make sure you and, and you know, hopefully soon your, your amazing wife will be on, uh, as a guest on here. We wanted to make sure that we got everybody sitting in the booth that – uh. Actually, our our, uh, our president and CEO built this by hand. Hmm. He came in with his tools and and brought his Iowa skills out here. And, <laughs> well, we got some got transferable skills from yeah, those lives. Exactly. Right? So, but yeah. pleasure to be here with you, and Noni, nice to meet you. Yes, finally. you too. So I don't know where 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 to start. Where do we go? Where we go with this? Well, you know, start from the beginning. You know, where'd you grow up? How how things happen? How your addiction? How your life? You know, transpired to where you are today, you know, the ups, downs. You tell us. We just want to get to know you. We want to know the beauty. We want to know the struggle. And we also want to know what change looks like, how how that looks. Because, you know, I can, you can only sum it up in 45 minutes. But I tell you, when I tell you everybody that's listening, I put the blinders on the haters and actually looked at the work that Second Chance Center did in Hassan. You're talking about a gentleman that did it from the back of his car after a lengthy lengthy prison sentence. Well, let me tell you, brother. So so what we do and what we've done for the last 11 years with Second Chance Center is really just try to expand the perception of folks coming home from incarceration about what's possible, you know, what, what, what life can be like. And for me to be in a position to kind of help guide people along that kind of journey, believe me, brother, I had to come through one myself. I, you know, I'm, I'm from New York. I was, I was, uh, Conceived in New York, born in South Carolina, moved back to Brooklyn at three months old. So I just consider myself a, a New Yorker by, okay. I don't know, osmosis. <laughs> but uh, so I, I grew up there, brother. You know, when, you, when people ask me their concerns of uh, uh, addiction, you know, like I started using that five. And, and sometimes when people hear that, they're like, you know, you can see that look on their face like how? Yeah. You know, and, and I just say, you know, with the help of adults. Uh, it's truth. That's how I started at eight. You know, and so it was a thing for me that I never actually considered myself an addict. You know, I came up in an era in New York when if you were in the life and you were in the game, that was like, brother, that was like free pass to the clubs, to the parties. You got invites everywhere because you could just do your thing, you know, in the open. It wasn't like, you know, in later decades, it was a different kind of a thing. And we didn't consider the danger of a lot of the, the the substances that we, and I was indiscriminate. Yeah. You know, I mean, from from weed to Nepalese temple balls. I mean, if it's dope, I'm with it. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, <laughs> the funny thing about it is, I, like I said, I never considered myself an addict. Fast forward a bunch of years, and I'm out in Colorado now. And uh, <laughs> uh, I left because of the way things had gotten in New York as a result of me still struggling with my use and the kind of relationships that that brings to you. And uh, it was a thing where I had to go, bro. And I get a call from a friend of mine who was on the run. That should have said something to me, right? <laughs> <laughs> he was on the run. He was hiding out in Colorado. So he tells me about this place, and it really sounds kind of unbelievable, you know? But that same night, I get a call from my brother, my biological brother, and he's out in Golden for his job, and he's telling me the same kind of things. So when my partner called me back, I'm like, you know, I ain't got no money to go anywhere, man. And he said, I'm going to send you some money. Come on out. 
So I came to Colorado and it was this place, brother, you know, like a deep breath, you know? Mm -hmm. I remember going to the King Super the first day and I'm like, what's that smell, man? He said, what smell? I said, that smell, man, what, you know? It was the bakery, they were baking stuff. I never saw anything like that, brother. You know, they, <laughs> they took checks at the, at the register, you know, they had a, they had a thing at the end of the register that had uh, catalogs of apartments that were available. I mean, I'm coming from a place where they leave you an apartment in a will. Like, you know, it just gets passed <laughs> on. You know, there's no openings, yeah. no, you know, vacancies. So this blew my mind, brother, you know, this Colorado thing. And, and I, I thought this is a great place to, like, kind of start over. The thing about it is I brought me with me as well. And... uh even though at the time I was on one of those pauses from using, because keep in mind, I thought that I started what I wanted and stopped what I wanted. Yeah. That was my understanding of my disease, you know? And uh, so I was on one of those breaks when I came out here and, and everything was going well and uh, until it wasn't, you know? But I remember <clears throat> when I started using again, I was working for a company called Dixon Paper Company. And at some point, I was in a night shift, and at some point, they had all these posters posted up around the, the warehouse that said, you know, if you got a drug problem, holler at us, you know, we, you know, we got some treatment available, you know, we owe your job. I'm paraphrasing, yeah. you know? I'm like, who, who are you talking to? You know, yeah. you're talking to me. Yeah. But I was the one who was parking my, my uh, forklift at the bathroom every 20 minutes. It was that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And uh, it was just getting, it was, it was just, you know, escalating. The use was escalating. The, the conflicts associated with, was was escalating, and uh, I remember uh, I wrote about it too. I, this is just, is this a place for a shameless plug? Oh yeah, man! You mm -hmm. can you can talk about the books that you've written. Well, everything <laughs> you know, everything that you feel. Yeah. Let us know, and let us know how to you know at the end. Let us know how to purchase these 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 uh, the books that you wrote. You know, sevens a lot. Uh, one of my favorites, you yeah, know what well, I mean? So, well, all, yeah. Yeah, it's, it was, it's called Never Going Back, Seven Steps of Staying Out of Prison. And in there, I talk about this night, which was, uh, it happened very close to the time that I was arrested and, 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 and began a two-decade-long, you know, ordeal. But, uh, you know, it started up in the mountains, me being with my plug. And I, I had this idea that I was going to stop at every a uh, convenience store every 7-Eleven from Golden back to, I was going to stop off in there and, and, and hit this off. At the time, my, my thing was, was, was base cocaine, you know? And so uh, I did that, man. I must've stopped at 30 different places. So it took me about a good four hours to get back from, from, from Golden. And the last place I went was the 7-Eleven on Colorado and, uh, 17th, I think it was. And uh right across from that building that everybody wants but nobody could have. Yeah, it's, it's got a whole bunch got a whole bunch of lead yeah, lead man. poisoning issues. We looked at it too, brother. Yeah. It'd have been wonderful. It'd have been wonderful, but <laughs> had to back up off of it. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I, I pull up I pull up at this place and there's a Denver yeah. police car park. I pull it right next to it. I'm driving a I'm driving a new truck, brother. This is one of the things that 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 uh kind of had my mind tripping because I would see someone, for instance, only behind a dumpster trying to keep the wind from blowing their light out and say, you fucking crackhead. But I was parking in an alleyway next to the Harry Krishna Temple off of 14th Avenue, cooking on my own dope like I was different. You know what I'm saying? 
So this night I pull up right next to the police and I said the same thing in every place that I've ever been in that night. You know, where's the bathroom? That's all I say. And usually it's easy to find the bathroom because they're all built the same way. When I come in there, police are at the counter. I say the same thing. And they look at me and we hold our eyes, hold a gaze, you know. And I can imagine, and you probably can too, imagine how I looked at smoking cocaine for the last three and a half, four hours. Yeah. And uh, I go in the bathroom of this place and where I had been locking the door every time. This time I didn't, brother. I just pulled my, 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 my thing out, man. I sat it on my lap and uh, I pulled this pipe out. And in my mind, I'm saying like, they gotta come in here. And uh, I was all right with that because I knew it was gonna end one way or another. Like when the smoke cleared, either I was gonna be down or they were gonna be down and I was good with either one of them. And I'd never been in that place before, that space where I didn't care whether I died or caused someone else to. I don't know if people have ever experienced that, but for me, that, that was the darkest place that I ever been in. And I was sitting there in a dirty toilet bathroom in the bathroom of 7-Eleven waiting for the police to come in. And that, that night they probably said something to themselves like, let's get these donuts and get out of here, you know? Yeah. And, and whatever it was, we were both blessed that night. You know, that that's where I was at that time. But I had only one other time when I thought to reach out for help prior to that night. And, and I, I actually went to an NA meeting, brother, and I got there early. I got there an hour early. While I was waiting for them to open up the room, I went in the bathroom and got high and, and walked past the meeting when I came out. You know, so I was going to an NA meeting, strapped with dope, and I don't know what kind of an intention I had. That's, that's, that's where I was at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the next thing I know, a week later, I'm, I'm on my way to the penitentiary for the next 20 years. And it's funny thing, funny thing about it. I met Khalil, Khalil Halim, who's a, uh, we've transitioned that Second Chance Center. He's the, the, the executive director now. And this is a guy, people think he dropped out of nowhere on me. But actually, he's, he's the person who was there when I really started putting dots together. He gave me the blueprint. In the template, not just to get out the penitentiary, but to come to grips with some things about myself that, you know, I hadn't done prior. You know, when I met him, I was clean 15 years already. But in my mind, I, I was the same guy still. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't using, you know. And uh, I met him in a therapeutic community program. But the thing about it is I almost couldn't get in. It took me four years to get in because mm-hmm. when I when I first went to to – uh, reception in prison, you know, they give you these assessments. Yeah. Me, they ask you a thousand questions. I'm already in enough trouble, brother. I got 103 <laughs> years. I'm not fixing to tell you much about me, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm lying, you know? So when, when I put in to try to get into this drug and alcohol program, they say, hey, you ain't got no drug problem. Yeah. I said, look, hold up. I was lying. You know what's funny? Is <laughs> I did the exact opposite. And when I got out on parole, I had like four UAs a week, 20 classes. See, I was like, man. No, no. <laughs> so I said, look, I told this one uh, case manager, I said, look, man, I was in another place when I came in. Uh, yeah. That's almost 16 years ago, man. And uh, I wasn't really uh, that forthcoming. So can I can I do these tests again? And so they did. And so I, I put myself right back into the, the time frame that I just yeah. shared with y'all. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and I answered honestly from that perspective, and I rated as high as you could get. Yeah. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So uh, not only did I get in into that program, but later down the road, I got some some free uh, psychiatric stuff. You know, but a little extra. Let me sprinkle some of this. Yeah, yeah, all of that, man. But it, you know, it's odd because when I, I went to this this therapeutic community program because. For 15 years, I have been calling it a rat program, like everybody else in prison, mm-hmm. because it was about cognitive restructuring and it was peer driven, and people were checking you about your behavior and and this and that. And so I I, I echoed what everybody else said. I didn't know any mm-hmm. better until I heard uh, this formula that came out of that program, which is one that I incorporated into the work at Second Chance Center, which was thoughts plus feelings equals behavior. Yes. That made a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Like, and I still had a lot of work to do to come yes. to grips with how I got to think like I did, you know, instead of making excuses for it. Right. You know, and the feelings part of it, like really being honest and assessing, you know, how I felt about the world, my place in it, all that stuff. Because the formula said that unless I addressed those two things, that I wasn't going to be able to sustain any kind of behavior change. And for me, I was at a place in my life where I wanted a life back mm-hmm. and I and I couldn't afford to risk to risk my freedom again. So mm-hmm. I had to answer some questions while I was still inside. Mm-hmm. So I went into this place voluntarily, brother, but I also, <laughs> I also felt like I could, I could control the environment. So I remember telling my wife, I'm going to give them something, but I ain't going to let them get all in my head. That's how it started. Mm-hmm. My first week in this program, <laughs> they assigned me a big brother. And he says to me, uh, and we got to sign up for these. And is this a, a TC therapeutic program inside the inside, joint? Inside, yeah. Okay. It's an Arrowhead Correctional Facility. Okay. okay. Like I said, it took me four years to work my way down to it. Everybody that's listeners, therapeutic community is basically the iron mallet of, of recovery. It's a, a behavior modification facility. So that's what TC means, therapeutic yeah. community. Um, not only you get recovery, but you also get uh, to see yourself as you. Yeah. And get punished for you as you Something to like learn that. from you like to that. keep on going to be you. Yeah, excuse me for not for not for not clarifying. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's that. okay. I just always yeah. get that on there because we yeah. got three TC people right on this table okay. right here. Well, the first thing my big brother tells me is that we got to sign up for these these tournaments, like a, a Monopoly tournament and a, a Spades tournament. I'm like, I don't play games. He said, I hear what you're saying, but we got. I said, Look, you're not hearing me, man. I said, I don't play games. I don't play cards. I don't play ball. I don't play. That's that's. You know, that's how I did my time up until that point. And he said, yeah, I hear what you're saying, man, but we're going to have to sign. Like, he didn't care nothing about what my life had been. He didn't care nothing about my uh, self-image. He didn't care nothing about how I had been doing time. He was really trying to tell me that this was a different process. So the first day I remembered going to the first NA meeting there in that program, Tomas. Mm-hmm. And it was September 1st, 2004. And everybody in this group spoke, and I'm listening to them for the whole, like, yeah. 50 minutes, man. My name is so-and-so. I'm an addict. And, I, and when I realized that I was the only person that hadn't spoken yet, I also realized that my life was coming out of other people's mouths. Okay, okay. So tell, <laughs> yeah. me, tell me how that feels. Man, it was like, I'll tell you how it felt when I said, my name is Hassan, I'm an addict. Man, it was like a weight was off me. I had I, been married to my wife 15 years at that time. I never said that to her. I had never admitted that. I never admitted it to anyone. And this is Amani, your, your wife yeah. right now. Yeah. yeah. She yeah. rolled with you the whole time, yeah. right? Yeah. I never, I never admitted that to anybody. 
including myself. And with me saying that in a room where I wasn't judged for that, like everybody else had said the same shit, you know? When I said it, it was like, now, now what do I do? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and like I said, I had been clean 15 years already, but my mindset was very much the same, brother. It was like, you know, uh, not a lot had changed about how I processed the world or how I uh, regulated relationships or interactions with other human beings. It was, it was always still, still, I mean, that was, I was reared in that space. So nothing escaped that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they said to me when I got there, they said that only had to change one thing. And I said, what's that? They said everything. And I was offended. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm Muslim. I, I felt really strongly about my religious beliefs, even though I'm in the penitentiary and I got all this time and I've done all these things. I still felt like I was a good person. and I believe in these good things, but they told me I had to change everything. And after I got past the off- being offended part, I saw the truth in it because they did. Did they do the white page to you too? What's that? No, I, like this is how much you know. That's what they told me after no, that. This they, is how much you know. They no, gave me the white page. No, and I was they, like, great. They were kind of camp, they were kind of careful at first with their approach to me for some reason. But uh, no, no, I didn't. I didn't get that one, man. But you know, uh, that was a huge thing for me to be able to be in a space like that. Mm-hmm. And the thing about TC is you're separated from general population. So this is the first time in 16 years that I didn't have to like watch my back every minute because we were really kind of in a safe environment. Everybody that was there was trying to go home and had an opportunity to go home. So the kind of stuff you normally deal with, we didn't have to deal with. So Great off your show. Yeah, so when you, don't, when you don't have to watch your back, you get a chance to actually maybe look at yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that was, a, that was a big process for me, uh, uh, being there and going through that. And when I say like, when I speak about Khalil and not to blow him up, is that, you know, one of the things Please I do, because we got to get him on here, too. Okay, well, here's the thing, you know, <laughs> he never he never had a use issue, but that was his lifestyle. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And when he came through, you know, the person that ran the program, Tanya Garcia, she said, don't, don't BS me. You're not a drug addict, you know, but your addiction is something else, mm-hmm. you know? And she pointed that out to him. But for me, it was like... Uh, uh, I told my wife I wasn't going to let him get in my head. I was going to give him something to work with. And then I realized that I was still trying to manipulate my my surroundings and my environment. Mm-hmm. And but if I may, um, can, can I speak about your spirituality? Sure. Yeah, so to to put things together, I've always wanted to ask you this question. So to get with with Khalil, that's that's when when your Muslim path started, or was that no, prior? No, no, no. So you've been you've been Muslim for quite a while yeah, at this point since the since the seventies. So during this time, how did treatment, spirituality, and being Muslim and, and keeping your practice of being Muslim how how was that for you? How did how did that how did that resonate? Because it's concepts that could possibly conflict or well, go together. No, ain't no possibly conflicting, brother. My whole life was a conflict. Yeah. My 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 belief, my 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 feelings, my emotions, my my commitments, it okay. was all in conflict. All of it. Mm-hmm. And when I said that I, I, I never was honest with anybody about where mm-hmm. I meant that, I was never honest with anybody about mm-hmm. what I was dealing with or why. Uh, it was always something to hide. There was always a shame attached to it. Mm-hmm. That it, wasn't, it, it wasn't that when I was younger. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just what we did. But, you know, 
my commitment to Islam actually made me feel differently about those kinds of things. And I tried to, I tried to minimize those things in my life as much as possible. Use was the last one, the one that I had the most difficulty with. Mm-hmm. And so like, you had two paths of redemption to get right with, with, with Islam yes. and to get right with it, with, with your, with your addiction. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I, in my book, one of the steps of the seven steps is know your addiction. And I didn't get there from any academic space. You know, that, that was my journey, you know, coming to be honest about it and, and, and realizing how it has always impacted everything as opposed to being just something, you know, peripheral. It was always a driver, mm-hmm. you know, and I need to understand why that was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just going through that program and dealing with folks who are, I'm not just talking about the professionals. I'm talking about some of the folks that were in there trying to do the same things I was doing, brother. It was life altering for me. And it wasn't an easy thing for me because I didn't respect anybody. I remember going to my first group and when I had, we were introducing ourselves around and when I introduced myself, whatever I said, it was to make everybody in there know that I wasn't like them. And that didn't go over big. <laughs> Big with, yeah. with the yeah. therapist, you know. Yeah. So she was on me for the next six months oh, yeah. straight. She, you know I mean? she saw her game. Yeah, oh, game man. On. And so they had something that was called game, you know, where you would sit in the hot seat. Yeah. So you know, we you all know hot seat, know hot people seats. can get at you, but you can't say nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, it was not like Pier One. This was this was different. So you know, even though I was trying, brother, and I was you know I wasn't resistant to a process. I was trying to work with them. But I still was in a hot seat every yeah. week. So, okay? <laughs> so, listeners, this is basically what a hot seat is. Yeah. Imagine putting your chair in the middle of your living room. Yeah. And letting your family gather all around you. Yeah. Because you ate dad's <laughs> pork chops. You left the, the car with no gas in it and spent part of the rent money. So they get to yell at you. Or worse. Yeah. Or worse for yeah. quite a while, and you can't say nothing. Yeah. So this is this is this. So they got to speak first. Oh, and it used to be like seven or eight people to speak. And what I would do is I would take what the first person said and verbatim, I would destroy everything they said. And I would move on to the next person. And Tanya Garcia said to me one day, she said, Asan, you can't possibly be listening to what people are saying to you if in your mind you're destroying what they say. So she forbid me to speak. Now I'm really in. It ain't keeping me out the hot seat, but now I can't speak at all. So I'm from New York, so I'm gesticulating, brother. I'm using my hands. I'm doing all kinds of stuff, you know. She made me sit on my hands, bro. <laughs> nah, I can't speak. I can't make no can't gestures. <laughs> I can't grab my forehead, you know, or nothing. And all I was left with was like listening. Like I learned, I learned how to actually listen because <laughs> yeah. I had no other options. Yeah. And the things that I had always been taking as attacks on me weren't that at all. People were... People were trying to hold a mirror up to me, Tomas. Yeah. They were trying to yeah. tell me some shit about me that I wasn't acknowledging. You know, I got a close friend of mine, Nathan Badia, and he tells me all the time about games, how I used to take it. Yeah. He goes, so Tomas, tell me, remember what you were mad about? And I'm in this shit up. You were like, nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So these people, yeah. these, people were, these people were trying to give me the game, brother. They were, yeah. trying, to, they were trying to help. They yeah. were trying to share what they had, because when we do that, we reinforce yeah. it for ourselves. That's what it is. You know, people look at sometimes the work that we do, you in particular, mm-hmm. and like it's some magnanimous gesture on your part, but they don't understand that, that it's, it's to keep us safe yeah. as well. 
Yeah. It ain't, it ain't, it's selfish in a, in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah. Me working with folks that are still struggling to get past, past their past and still struggling with mental health and substance use disorders and that kind of thing, it keeps it fresh for me, bro. Yeah. Because I know that couple of couple of bad decisions I could be in the same space. Let me tell you, man, when I got to Pier One, I was there for like a month. And I heard that the the the, the prior director of the program was in the detox room. I'm like, oh <laughs> what? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Now, this is a cat who yeah. had been a heroin addict for like 25 years and got himself together, man, got a PhD, was running this huge program for the University of Colorado. And I guess he started thinking he was regular folks and he mm-hmm. could drink. Mm. Mm-hmm. Five years later, he's calling the program from outside of a detox center in Florida, brother, with a with the bathrobe with the ass out, yeah. crying on the phone, begging him to come get him. So now, when when he gets to the, I can't wait for him to get out because I want to I want to know what happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. And up until that point, I was always very defensive about people who try to minimize my clean time inside. And like, yeah, hey, you were locked up. Yeah, I was locked up, but I could have got high every day. Yeah, you know, my wife visit, my yeah. wife visited me every week, and people would have given me free dope just to trick my wife off. You know, you know how yeah. it is. So I, I used to be offended by that. But when this man came out and joined the group the first day, before I could even ask him what happened, he said something that changed everything for me. Because he said that the person who woke up first this morning, the one who's been clean the longest, is the one who woke up first this morning. Yeah. And for me, that was, that changed my, to me, I stopped counting days like that. And I, it, it, it galvanized for me the reality that we got to manage this 24-hour cycle. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do that, you got a chance of this thing, you know, taking you out mm-hmm. again. Like, you got to worry about today. Yeah. That had me focused up differently, brother, because this is a person, he was accomplished. He's a freaking PhD. He was, yeah. you know, he was all these things that people sit around thinking about being. Yeah. And he was sitting in the same circle with me. Because we forget. Yeah, man. And, and, you know, so up until then, I was touting the fact that, you know, I had this many years. Yeah, I, I, today, today. And here it is, brother. I'm, the last time I got high was Halloween, 1989. All right, I know it was Halloween because I had I had weed snuggled into Denver County Jail. That's funny. You know what? I started drinking when I was eight. Started smoking weed when I was about nine. You were quitting, and I was starting. Yeah, <laughs> I hadn't I hadn't gotten high in, in in ten months. Yeah, and I rolled a big spliff. And when I woke up November first, half of it was on my chest, and the police could have seen it all night. Half of it was on my chest, so it like, knocked me out. You know, that was the last that was the last time. But but meeting hearing that man and listening to his testimony, you know, refocused me. Like yeah. you you gotta take care of today. And so that that's been the thing, man. When I came home, it wasn't about uh starting an organization. I didn't know what to expect, man. I came home, I got out at fifty years old, you know, and uh I I had seen I went in and Ronald Reagan was president. Yeah. Came out, Bush was in his second term. You know, some time yeah. had passed. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yes. And I was just committed to a couple of things. I like, you know, I wasn't going to get high. Uh, I wasn't going to commit anything that resembled a crime. And, and I was going to work hard. Beyond that, I didn't know what to expect, brother. And I, I wasn't the person that tried to live 
in two worlds when I was inside. I needed to really focus up in there. Yeah, and you know what? I, I love this part of the story because everybody that knows who you are, that knows you, you just everybody thinks you just came out the gate like no. you you had a plan. As soon as you hit, you got out of out of treatment, yeah. got out of prison. You were you were focused. You're ready to go. Boom, no. boom, boom. No, and what we is, know people like that. We know people yeah. who are sitting inside. And have wonderful ideas about what they want to do for the world when they get out. You know, f- for me, it wasn't it wasn't like that, brother. I I spent the first fifteen years of my incarceration. I was in court every single day, and when I say that, I was fighting a case or, or appealing a case every day for fifteen years because all I wanted to do was get out of the penitentiary. And all I could do to do that, I had to point to every mistake everybody else made, and I did that, brother. And I went through. Uh, seven, seven, seven appeals at the at the state level. I went through uh, Colorado Court of Appeals seven times. I went to Colorado Supreme Court three times. I went to the feds twice. Okay, and every time they find a new and imaginative way to smash me. And uh, the last time it happened, I, I, I said to my wife, uh, "Like, why does this keep happening?" Because I, I thought I was doing some good things inside, brother, not not just uh-huh. for myself. You know, very frustrating. Uh, and and she said that. Uh, Allah is going to continue to bring the same lessons around until you learn whatever it is you're supposed to learn. And she wasn't in no position wow. to tell me that, but she was right about it, brother, because the same things were happening. Nothing was changing. Yeah. And I remember sitting down on, you know, praying that day. And I got to the part where in our prayer it's called dua. It's like supplication. You just get your bag on to God. It's really informal. And I didn't know what to say, man. I was like, you know, 15 years of coming up with new schemes and new approaches to getting out. Yeah. And here I was, I didn't, I, I didn't know what, I was at that place, brother. And I remember hearing myself say, you know what I need. Like, that's all I had, bro. You and, just get tired of shoplifting yourself. Yeah, man. And, 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 and as soon as I got up, the thing that I thought was, yeah, they might have got this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. But they got the right guy because you were running amok and you weren't going to stop. You know, and since I've been out here, I've never promoted the fact that I was actually incarcerated for a crime that wasn't mine. I had so many others, brother. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I chose to be indignant about them not getting yeah, me you right. Paid your tab. You, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You paid your tab. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it wasn't at that point, brother. When I said that, uh-huh. is when things started to change. And that's what that's a lesson that that I think I needed to learn. And that was accountability. Like yeah, you never man. Had. It, that's. That's the first step in my in my process and in my book. And, you know, it starts because I know that's what it is. We got to be we got to be accountable. We have to own our own crap. And that's hard, man, because it says things. You have to accept things about you that are painful. Yes. You have to accept your weaknesses for what they are. You know, you also have to process the fact that there have been people pouring things into you over the course of your life that may have been useful at one point or another. But we're now just baggage. Mm-hmm. Things that are getting in the way. You know, that's part of this work too, brother. It's like baggage dumping and learning how to do that. And uh, so so me coming home, man, I had people the first five, six years that I was inside, Tomas. You know how they do. Everybody's leaving to yeah. you what they, you know, ones that cared about you or that you thought yeah. cared about you. They tell me what they're going to do when they get out. You know, yeah. they're going to look out, this and that. And really all I saw was people coming back. Yeah. So after about six, seven years, I stopped people from saying something, you know, look, just go on, live your life, don't hurt nobody. But when I got ready to leave, I gathered the people together that I cared something about, and I told them that, uh, you know, I wasn't going to make a whole bunch of promises. I said, I'm not going to pay grandma's light bill. I ain't cutting her lawn. I'm not buying baby's diapers. I'm not sending a bunch of money orders in here, and I'm definitely not taking a whole bunch of collect calls. 
But what I will promise you is that I won't be the reason anybody says no to you. That was the plan I had, Tomas, wow. not to build anything. I won't be the reason anybody says no to you. And for me, that was a big umbrella because it meant that I had to find a way to walk through this world of my life conflict-free as much as possible. And when I did have conflict, I had to manage it. And it's funny because you have become the epitome of that statement. Well, it wasn't. It was a process, but it, was, it wasn't easy, man. And you talk about you talk about my haters. You yeah. know, you know where a lot of them came from. When I first came out here, was looking for a place to land, a place to belong, yeah. a place to to put some work in, a place yeah. to learn from folks. You know, people looked at me like I was the guy in the room that just got out of prison. Exactly. Okay. And to clarify, when I was talking about haters, so so our listeners know. You're talking about a situation when you have incarceration, you have a skin tone that's less desirable. Let's just say that that way. You know what I mean? The last name, last name, because I've had that, yeah. you know, like when I when I got incarcerated, my name was Tomas Federico Emilio Hernandez. Yeah. As soon as I'm in there, they got some guy from ICE coming in to try to get me that questionnaire. I'm like, yeah. yo, man, yeah. I'm from America, yo. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you get the same thing as a black male. But at the same time, when you've done multiple years and you're saying, hey, I'm going to do something with my life. Yeah. People give a lot of promises that don't deliver. Yeah. And at the same time, there's a lot of people that should be locking arms together yeah. that aren't locking arms together. And, you know, that's why I gave you that those kudos from the beginning was 22 of us. Yeah. Like the day that you had tears when we got that sun, that sunset, the sunrise again, mm -hmm. we're sitting there. Everybody, you got to understand, we're sitting in the Capitol the other day with something that the first Wages partner, Hassan, was there. And all of us got to speak to that council and get reentry money back in the state. Yeah. And you're talking 22 partners that are lived experience people that started in the back of his car, that started in the back of his vehicle. And now your loved ones have a chance. Thank you for that. Well, but I, you know, I can't take credit for that. I'll tell you though, CCGRC, Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition, yeah. they've always been the the head of the spear for us. But you've been part of all of it. <laughs> well, yeah, they birthed me, brother. Yeah, exactly. They birthed me. Exactly. Christy Dada, you yeah. know, I said, you think yeah. I can do this? She said, yeah, you can do this. Uh, yeah. You know, she lent me yeah. her lawyer. She lent me one of her staffers who was a lawyer yeah. tell me do my expedited paperwork yeah. for my 5013C. Yeah. I think I told you I bounced a check off the yeah. IRS yeah. for it. Okay, yeah. yeah. It was an accident. No way up but up from there, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. No hip-hop yeah. move, but I got to have my name on it. Well, you know, but, yeah. she, but, but, yeah. but she in particular, CCRC, yeah. but Chrissy Don in particular recognized that there were people in community doing good work, and, and she said like we didn't we shouldn't have to have car washes and, and, and pie sales to generate resources to take care of yeah. folks. That should be that should be you know there should be coffers open for that, and that's that's what Wagey started was basically hijacking a part of DOC's budget, like, a very small part of it. Yeah, but but what everybody has to understand about the guest today is this. When you have a Muslim man with a record standing in front of, I remember the first time you invited me to the Capitol, I ain't even been there. Remember I was dressed up like Run DMC. I show, I show up in an Adidas no, outfit with chains remember. everywhere. But you different, brother. <laughs> exactly. You, you different anyway. I showed up. He gave me a smile and was like, yo, let's go in here. Let's get these people housing. No. I said, all right, let's go. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, but people took him seriously. You know what I mean? And it's about that heart. It's about that intent. And it's funny how a hater will turn into asking if he's hiring yeah. in two seconds. I've had that too. But you know yeah. what? The same people at that time when I was looking for this space that that didn't want to make eye contact with me in rooms, like for 
chance we might I might start up a conversation. Yeah. These are the same people that when we kind of got our feet up under us and we're getting blessed with opportunities, they want to circle back and, and do coordinated kind of efforts. And my whole thing was, if you you felt like that about me, that's how you feel about my people. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't bring myself to work with you. Now, I'm not holding no grudge. I just remember <laughs> this ain't for you. Yeah, you know. So some of those people, the uh, you know, are still on the sidelines yeah. waiting for us to so, crash. So let me ask you: the birth of Second Chance Center. Yeah. How did that? How did that come about? The, the, the desire and the passion well, today. It was like. Let me tell you, it's real quick, because I know you looked over at your man, Danny, over there. So I'm just you, making sure we're okay. Look at, we got you're looking at the time. clock. But, we got so plenty I'm of working time. for another place uh, called the Turnabout Program, and it had been doing reentry work for about 25 years. It started as a homeless uh, yeah, program. I've been there. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, the, the, the director, she actually auditioned me for about a year before she took a chance on hiring me. And she had me coming up on Saturdays and speaking to a whole group of folks, you know. So that's what I did for a year, bro. And uh, finally, she had written me into a grant and brought me on. And I appreciated the fact that I was learning how to do case management work. I was working with my people, you know, and I was doing something finally, you know, and uh, something related finally. And uh, <laughs> somebody, they three three board members came to our staff meeting in, in October of 2011 and told us they were closing the program in four days. Oh, man. So now most people went to panic, and I was in addictions council at the time, but this was still about 70% of my income. But what I had seen, Tomas, was people, you know, we had some resources. We were doing things to help people, but people were still going back to prison. And almost every month at least, somebody would come out and say to me, hey, Hassan, everything was going great. You know, I was making $20 an hour. I was back with my kids. I, you know, in the bottom, like, like something happened and the bottom fell out. You yeah. know, I knew it wasn't like that. People were getting undisciplined about things. People were cutting corners or, or, or trying to take shortcuts. I knew that something was missing. Yeah. But I didn't have the confidence to tell people who had given me an opportunity, hey, I think you need to be doing it this way. But when those three board members came in, instead of, instead of you know, feeling like, you know, it's panic time, like most folks on the staff, you know, I was like, what does this really mean? As opposed to assuming it was all bad. So I came up with two things. One, I had started writing a book four years earlier, hadn't written a word in two and a half years. So I was like, finish what you started, dude. And the other one was, if you really think that, you know, some things that are missing, that you could do some things to improve this work, stop being scared. And, man, I thought about this for for a couple of months. I, I bought a little table and I put it out on the balcony of, of the condo that my wife bought for me to come home to. And, and I said I wasn't going to leave the house until I wrote for at least an hour. That started on... January 1 of 2012, I said to myself this. I'm glad it was leap year, so I had 29 days in February because I needed them all. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but but uh, that month in February, I, 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 I'm sitting on the laptop, but I'm at the Secretary of State site, and I'm putting in a, this business proposal, whatever you need to file. And I couldn't hit the submit button. No, okay. no, man. My wife is in her office, and I call her, and I said, "Baby, look at you know, look at what I'm working on." We had talked about it, of course, and so I said, "You really think I can do this?" She said, "Of course." And I pushed the button. It was like right up at that moment, yeah. I still had the, those self doubts about what I was taking on, but and I, I used to front. Remember when they had some place called a Pizza Fusion? Yeah, yeah. I used it's to front like, place. Yeah. I used to front like that was my office. The Colorado <laughs> Coalition for the Homeless ran it. 
And and it was beautiful, man. The, yeah. the atmosphere was great. The food was great. Yeah. I, I'd either mess with you guys with busted computers at Turnabout, and then i go get some pizza down the street. <laughs> well, I, 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 met, I had a meeting with a sister named Leanne Wheeler, and I said, look, I just started this organization. Yeah. I ain't got no money. I don't know where I'm going to get any from, but this is what, I'm, this is what I want to do. And she said, just work on the vision, and he'll provide the provision. And like that, made, that resonated with me at the time. And I, I believe that. Like everything is, comes from the same source, brother. And if I just worked on the vision of what I wanted to try to do, that I find a way to do it. That's kind of how this thing started. And I mean, it was just what was left in my pockets for the first year, brother. The first grant I had was a $3,000 grant that I got at the end of my first year. And I was happy as hell, man. It was Chinook fun that, that took a chance on me, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, three months later, two months later, I meet Richard Morales and Richard yeah. Paul. And, uh, and that was the beginning of things changing because they were, they came to announce, uh, this grant that was coming out, a labor department grant, and it said Latino Coalition for Community Leadership. So I didn't know if my black ass was going to be welcome, but I went, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I had two copies of my book, yeah. and I pointed out the window to Richard, to both Richards, and yeah. I pointed to my car, which people laugh when they hit it. It was a pretty nice car, no? It was it was a, it was a yeah, yeah, red, red Jaguar. Jaguar. Yeah. Right. It was yeah. ten years old, but it was clean, yeah. right? So anyway, I point out the window at the car. I said, "That's Second Chance Center. I need somebody to put me on." I said, "If you want to know how I think about this reentry thing, it's in this book." And I gave them each a copy of this book, you know. And um, I just parked the car. I couldn't write, so my wife wrote for the grant and subcontracted Second Chance Center. That's how we got on, and that was in 2013, brother. Now. You know, we got a budget over $8 million, man, which is, you know, uh, for some people that might think that that we've arrived. But the fact of the matter is that we've just grown to keep pace with the need over the years. Yeah. We we were playing catch up for like the first eight, nine years, but like on a hamster wheel. Yeah. Khalil coming in at this time, you know, is like to get in front of everything. You know, it needed a new kind of. It needed a wider wingspan than I had. It needed a younger kind of approach to some things. It needed, it needed other disciplines and skills that that. that yeah, and you, and you know it's funny when when you have an organization when it finally takes life, mm-hmm. you're gonna either show up or not, but it's still gonna be there. Oh yeah, and you and you gotta and you gotta make sure that you you keep keep that pace, keep that family, keep yeah. that. It takes a lot know, to fuel it, man. But yeah. you know, but I you know I always want it, and I always see that I want it. Second Chance Center to be serving people long after nobody remembers the people who started it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I still do, because why not? Yeah. You know, and it's uh, gotta stay. It's gotta be here. Yeah, man. And my whole my whole purpose is, you know, I really I really want my scales to balance, mm-hmm. you know, uh when I when I'm done with this life. Some you know, because I, I've done damage, brother. Mm-hmm. So like in this work. You know, I, I'm a proponent of people paying their debt to society and, and not being saddled with collateral consequences, which we know hinder people in their transitions back to the community. We know that. But for me and the folks that we serve, I've been telling them all these years that we we still owe. We might not owe the state. We paid that debt, but we owe the, the communities that we exactly. ran rampage through. We owe we owe the family the families that we destroyed, disrupted, you know, harm. We we owe, yeah. and we have to put up. I think 
This is yeah. my opinion. And we I have agree. to have lives that, that, that pay back. So I have two questions for you in, in, in that part, because um, the first one, basically, and actually, I think it'll be in two parts. Um, people think that it's monetary when you owe somebody, and it's really not. It's, mm. it's material. Yeah. What does that look like for you? Like the fruits of, like for me, the things that I got back in recovery, nothing can buy. You know, my daughter, yeah. my, 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 my daughters now, my, yeah. my son, my wife, um, you know, my, uh, I got, I got kind of like the little twin that you got. I, I got Bubba Chino and you got Hugo, yeah. you know what I mean? Those, those things like that, you know, those, those things that are in there. Um, and that's really, to me, that's the, the, that what I owe them. Yeah. I owe them my presence. I owe them my, my, my drive, my, my, my positivity, yeah, my, all of that, you know, look, brother, I was on, I was standing on uh, Walton street in 2008, January, and I had a job right up the street, but this was right where the light rail turns. Mm -hmm. And Gilliam is just to the to the right of this spot. And it was mothers gathered, mothers who had lost their children to murder. And it was cold, man. And I was standing out there. My boss was there. And uh, they had pictures of the people, of the people, their children who were murdered. Mm -hmm. And I personally knew three of the people who were responsible for those cases. You know, and one of them, one of the cases was my, my, my brother, Sean's case. And the things they were saying about us, us, when I say us, those who resort to violence to resolve conflicts or those who don't value other human life like it, it should be valued, like they yeah. would talk about us. You know, the things they were saying, I felt like, no, that's not who he is. Because he was the first person, the only person that I ever met inside who was devastated by his crime devastated. Not the fact that he had a life sentence. I never knew anybody, brother, who was just messed up behind what happened. That was him. I wanted to say something to defend him, but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to say exactly. anything, right? And uh, the last kid was a kid who got shot in, for a Bronco jacket. And that just happened a couple of days before. So, I, you know, I want, I'm, they're, they're saying all these things, and they're, they're, they're harsh things that they're saying, but they're true. They're, it's their truth, brother. And I wanted to leave, but I couldn't I tried to walk away, and all I could manage still minus was like to move, shift my weight from one foot to the other. So I couldn't say nothing, and I couldn't leave. I was stuck, bro. And at the end, the mothers were going to release these balloons to a song that they had on a boombox. And uh, the last woman, she, they, her sister had to peel her fingers off the oh, ribbon wow. to let the balloon go. Just messed me up, bro. And when I walked away, my boss was like, you all right? I said, no, man, I'm not. And I called Tanya Garcia, who ran that program. I called her, and I told her what, had, what I had just experienced. She said, you weren't supposed to be able to say anything. You weren't supposed to be able to leave. You're supposed to feel everything you're feeling right now. What I felt was I had been home almost two years. I hadn't accomplished much of anything, but I had a yeah. job, brother. I was home. Yeah. I, you know, my life was normal. I said, but you ain't did anything, brother. You, people are still exactly where you left them. That's what I told myself. Mm-hmm. Because this woman, one of her, her son was murdered 13 years ago. And she said every time she heard the screen door close, she turned to look for him. This is 13 years later. And so I said, you, you patting yourself on the back because you just living a half-assed normal life. You ain't did nothing, man. You haven't done anything. And I wanted to look for something to do, brother. I, I remember finally I got to sit down with the, the brother who was the director of Gilliam. And I came there and I just wanted to do something pro bono. I want to work with the kids. And he was very gracious, brother. But he sat me down. And he told me, basically, look, you ain't been out long enough. 
You know, you need to do some work someplace. Get up under somebody. Learn yeah. some things. And I left out of it dejected, brother, because I really wanted to give. But everything he said to me was true. And over the course of these last 10 years, I've had to have that same conversation with people who've come out, brother, with these ideas and want to jump jump right into to, to this thing. When you got to get your own feet up under you. You got you to gotta really get a, a hold of your own issues. You got to be on top of your own recovery. Mm-hmm. You know, before you start interjecting yourself into other people's lives like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the funny thing about it is like five or six years later, I'm walking through our building on 16th and Dayton when we were over there. Mm-hmm. And I hear somebody say, there's our ED. And so I stopped and I came back down the hall to figure they probably want to introduce me to somebody. And it's this brother. He's bringing suits and donating. And he went to introduce himself. And I'm like, brother, I, I met you. I reminded him about when I met him. Mm-hmm. And I said, when you, the things you said to me. You know, I left out of my head down that day, you know, and feeling, I said, but I listened. I processed everything and I did what you said. I followed your advice. I said, what are you thinking? It wasn't like how you like me now. And he, he told me he had heard about Second Chance Center. Of course, he didn't know that I was, he didn't put the two together. But, you know, he, he took the time to tell me that I needed to still do some work on myself before I put myself in the midst of someone else's life yeah. and somebody else's transition. That was valuable. To me, brother, that was a gift, actually, to me, you know, and, and over these years, people have come to to help in this work that I probably got as much, if not more, from them as they've gotten from me in the process. That's and, how this thing And that's works. well perfectly said. So it comes to that question that I was going to have. What is the true philosophy of Second Chance Center? Where is it going today? And how does somebody that's listening right now... Um, get a hold of Second Chance Center for the things that are happening. So everybody that's that's on the air right now, mind you, you have a resource in this community today on reentry on all levels, even all the way to doing to what he's mentioned, to very, very lengthy sentences for that support for that family member that's there, um, to maybe even just a, a couple years in prison that needs to come out mm-hmm. and they need to get into classes, they need to get to the support, what is that philosophy that you've created? What is it today? How do we get a hold of you? What do we do? If we're a listener sitting there right now and we got a loved one, we need to know. How, yeah. how do we do that? Well, thank you, Tomas. Look, our mission statement is real simple. We say helping formerly incarcerated people transition to lives of success and fulfillment. And we think those are two very distinctly different things. Like success is a checklist, man. You know, the person has a job, they have their own apartment, whatever. People go to prison all the time with those boxes checked. So the fulfillment piece is what we thought was most important. Mm-hmm. So that required a lot of work, content restructuring work. People had to really come to grips with how they got to think like they do and work through very uncomfortable feelings. You know, when we started doing this work, man, we had people opening up and trusting us and trusting this process. And we were way over our heads because, like you know, uh, people who've lived lives of uh, uh, addiction, uh, impacted lives, and incarceration as well. It's all trauma-related, brother. And, and there's a lot to unpack for folks to get through. And it's like, for me, I've always believed this, and I know this to be true, and I've been an addictions counselor for the last 13 years, man. Once you stop using, my belief is now you got a chance to work on all this shit that really drove you to use. So so for if 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 there was a... <laughs> A model for us is that life can be really, really different mm-hmm. if you approach it differently. We just 
try to put ourselves in a position to be guides in that process. You know, if people want to trust a process or trust somebody like we all need to, we 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 try to position ourselves to be that 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 place where people can come and find that. So we now we're a staff of fifty six full time folks. So it, it's it's a, it's a big it's a pretty big operation. We got a, a few locations. People can go to www.sccolorado.org, take you right to our website, see what we're doing. We're located in Aurora. We're on Second uh, and Potomac at two two four Potomac. Um, we're in Denver on 14th and Delaware. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the two office locations. Anybody who has someone in their family, a loved one who's currently incarcerated, looking to come out and have some assistance, if they're coming to Metro Denver, we got them. You know, all they gotta do is come with the with an open mind about doing some things differently and, and accepting some kind of guidance. You know, I've gone in, I've gone into prisons and I've been going into them since they first allowed me to, but I was still on parole mm-hmm. and was going inside prisons. And, uh, you know, real clear with folks, like if you still think you got another run in you, if you're still yeah. resolving all your conflicts with violence, you know, mm-hmm. if manipulation is like your default mechanism, you know, don't with us yeah. because we don't have no time or no resources to waste on anybody that ain't really to invest in themselves. That's still the, that's still the only criteria. You got to be willing to, to invest in yourself and that's going to require you to be, to make some honest assessments. It's going to require you to accept some things people say to you uh-huh. uh, that you're not going to always like, you know, uh, <laughs> my wife and I, we were married 31 years knowing, and we was having this thing a couple of years ago. I'll call it that. And she said, you used to didn't have a problem with me having a difference of opinion or taking a different position. I said, no, baby, you, you misunderstood. I always had a problem with it. I just didn't have to see you for another week. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> We're here together every day. Give me some time to process. You know what I mean? So sometimes you need time yeah. to process the yeah. truth, bro, yeah. about yourself. Yeah. You yeah. know, give me some chance to do that. Uh, I can't. Oh, we're giving her some ammo for the show. Yeah. 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 You know, but yeah. she also likes to yeah. be right, brother. And, yeah. you know, and, and, and she... She she saw a human being yeah. in me, even when I was wearing a lot of different masks. Yeah. And when people were telling her that she was wasting her life, you know, she felt like she was invested in mine. You know what I mean? And uh Man, it's a beautiful thing to see you, your grandkids, yeah. your wife, see on trips. It's uh you know, it's hope. It's it's yeah. you know, it's it's everything. Even to all your staff members, I got personal relationships with a lot yeah. of your staff members. Yeah. I love them to death. You know, we're gonna have to cut it in because I don't want to have to cut all the beautiful gems that you got <laughs> and to put it in an hour. But I got an idea so we can hear the whole thing. Everybody, I'm hoping you you were inspired today, this morning. Had a couple cups of coffee with it, and I always say it when I get a chance. If you got a hangover right now, good. I hope it hurts really, really bad right now. And, uh, <laughs> you always side off yeah, with that, yeah, yeah, I always mess with them on that when I get a chance. I'm just kidding. But, you know, with that being said, thank you, Hassan, the T, for, for coming on. Thank you. Once again, that's the founder of Second Chance Center. Always the talkative, beautiful, smart Nani that's sitting there, our <laughs> producer. But this show is definitely SOS, which is sharing our stories, brought to you by 1071 and 1015 Max Media. We're on the flow. We are on jamming. And we're having a great time this morning getting into some recovery and starting the day right. We'd like to thank you, Hassan, for coming in. Thank um, you, brother. I'm Tomas Hernandez. Have a great, blessed morning. 
love each other, care for each other. And if you need addiction help, you know, you can always reach out to Second Chance Center and also with your sponsors, Try. Find us on the on the internet. I'm sure I don't have to even put the www because most of y'all, even your kids right next to you, once they hear the name, they can find it. And that's Second Chance Center. That's www.scc.org. Or you can get at us at tribe at triberecoveryhomes.com. Thank you. Have a beautiful morning and have a blessed day.